Phase, the podcast that isn't going to tell you anything about your skincare routine. <laughs> Girl, leave your face dirty. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm Aubrey Gordon. I am Michael Hobbs. If you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash maintenance phase. You will get some bonus episodes with that. Um, and our next bonus episode is going to be Mike and I wailing and gnashing our teeth about fat suits. Fat suit spectacular. Yeah. So come on down. If you would like to support the show, you are more than welcome to. And if you don't, uh, just keep listening. We're so happy to have you. Also, don't. Stay with us. Also, don't. Stay yeah. with us. Aubrey Gordon, what are we talking about today? My understanding is that we're talking about Rachel Hollis, <laughs> who is a, like a person's name that I know. Okay. I know the title format of Rachel Hollis's books that is like, girl, wash your face or girl, what? I don't even know what the, but they all start with girl. Yes. Pronoun comma directive. Yes. <laughs> Girl, wash your face and girl, stop apologizing. And I don't really know more than that. I feel like there was this point in time where it was like, are you going to pay attention to Rachel Hollis or are you going to pay attention to Caroline Calloway? <laughs> and you chose your path. And I chose my path <laughs> and I stuck to it. I mean, one of the things that I learned doing the research for this episode is that there are two kinds of people in the world. People who have never heard of Rachel Hollis and people who are obsessed with Rachel Hollis. <laughs> and like, I went from one category to the other. And I am extremely excited about taking you along with me and describing to you why people cannot stop thinking about this person as soon as they learn anything about her. Yeah, let's dive in. I should say before we get going that this episode involves some suicide stuff. Oh, shit. So if that's gonna suck for you, I would recommend skipping like the first 15 minutes probably. Got it. So we are going to start with a freeze frame, needle scratch. I'll bet you're wondering how I got into this situation. Montage. So in 2021, Rachel Hollis is a motivational guru, lifestyle influencer, choose your term. She has 1.6 million followers on Instagram. Her book, Girl, Wash Your Face, was the second most popular book of 2018 on Amazon. What? Yeah, it was a massive sensation. She has a line of products on QVC. She does sponsorships for Target. She was, of course, a speaker on Oprah's 2020 vision, Your Life yes. in Focus tour. Yes! This show is basically just us going through like the lineup of that event and talking about them like one by one at this point. <laughs> she has a conference tour called Rise that goes around the country and it often sells out in minutes. And these are like large stadiums. And some of the tickets for these events cost $1,800 each. This also sounds like some real, uh, it feels like it's swimming in the same kind of waters as like mega church stuff. This is actually what got me interested in doing this episode. Mm. Her core audience is Christian women. Oh. Her book mostly sold through word of mouth, which is itself interesting that it becomes that big of a bestseller. And mm. it's mostly selling in the South and the Midwest. Mm. The Washington Post calls her books goop for red state women. As you're describing this, it feels like a really unique amalgam of this kind of like 90s self-help guru plus 2000s The Secret. Yeah. Plus... 2010s and 2020s like social media influencer culture totally yes without really knowing where we're going with this i'm just like oh those are three factors that i dislike individually <laughs> <laughs> 
her her core message it is i mean we're actually not going to dwell on it that much just because it's such standard motivational guru language it's basically you are the one holding yourself back you've got to have more belief in yourself the only point in her book where she actually mentions the phrase girl wash your face is in the final paragraph mm. it says girl get a hold of your life Stop medicating. Stop hiding out. Stop being afraid. Stop giving away pieces of yourself. Stop saying you can't do it. Stop the negative self-talk. Stop abusing your body. Stop putting it off for tomorrow or Monday or next year. Rise up from where you've been. Scrub away the tears and the pain of yesterday and start again. Girl, wash your face. <sighs> it's really interesting to hear this in the framework of goop for red state women because it's feeding a couple of things here right one is like you're the master of your own destiny but the flip side of that is anybody who's not doing that isn't taking charge of their own life and they really only have themselves to blame exactly. right like it leads to this kind of like critique of like quote-unquote victim culture mm. that is like leveled at anybody who wants to talk about like racism or poverty or like right larger forces than just like hey pick yourself up dust yourself off bootstraps i mean we're gonna we're gonna get into like the deep woof of like everything that she's ever written or done <laughs> but for our purposes now i'm gonna send you a clip in april 2021 she uploads a tiktok that implodes the entire thing oh and so i'm going to send you the tiktok doing a live stream. And I mentioned that there's a sweet woman who comes to my house twice a week and cleans. She's my, my house cleaner. She cleans the toilets. Someone commented and said, you are privileged AF. And I was like, you're right. I'm super freaking privileged, but also I worked my ass off to have the money to have someone come twice a week and clean my toilets. And I told her that. And then she said, well, you're unrelatable. What is it about me that made you think I want to be relatable? No, sis, literally everything I do in my life is to live a life that most people can't relate to. Most people won't work this hard. Most people won't get up at 4 a.m. Most people won't fail publicly again and again just to reach the top of the mountain. Literally every woman I admire in history was unrelatable. If my life is relatable to most people, I'm doing it wrong. Oh, no. Even by the standards of a lifestyle influencer, it's like one of the most tone deaf things I've ever heard in my life. Boy, oh, fucking boy. It is a it is a unique opportunity to just watch someone take a fucking swan dive. I showed it to my boyfriend and he's like, is this a deep fake? Why, why would anyone put this on the internet themselves? But then tell me about the content. What, what are your reactions to what she actually said? Uh, okay, so... When we used to do debriefs of like canvases, mm -hmm. we would do worst, weirdest and best. Okay. Worst thing about that fucking video is all of this shit about like, I worked for it. Hate it. I know. Weirdest is cleaning your toilets twice a week. Seems like a lot of toilet cleaning. I know. And also, I'm not wild about describing somebody who cleans your house as like, she cleans my toilets. Like, I have had various jobs where I've had to clean toilets. And if somebody reduced the job to like, this is Mike, he cleans the toilets. Like, it's such a belittling way to talk about somebody else. Yeah, you literally found the one part of their job that's related to human excrement. Exactly. Cool. What a respectful and wonderful way to talk about someone who's in your home. I know. Spending a bunch of time with your kids, with your family. 
doing a bunch of work to take care of you. It's also one of the things that like many of the women of color in the replies point out is that she's juxtaposing her like very open contempt of the woman who cleans her house with this like rise and grind thing of like, I get up at 4 a.m. And it's like, do you know who gets up at 4 a.m. in America? It's like low wage workers, many of whom like clean yeah. your house and clean hotel rooms you might get up at four in the morning to do Pilates or something, but a lot of people get up early because they can't afford a car and they are priced out of big cities and they have a three hour commute. Or they work the fucking swing shift. Yes. And that's when they're at work. So it's like you're glorifying like I get up at four while you're also denigrating people who probably get up at four. <laughs> like, fuck mm -hmm. you. <laughs> and then the other thing that I wondered about is she said something about like all the women I've admired throughout history are unrelatable. And I was like, I would be fascinated by which I mean probably a little bit horrified to see a list of like who are the women that Rachel Hollis admires throughout history. Oh my god. What? I cannot believe you are saying this. Okay, I was deliberately keeping an aspect of this clip from you. Oh no, what? When you post things on TikTok, you also put a caption. Mm -hmm. So when she says all of the women I've admired in history are unrelatable, think of like who are the most offensive people? who she could compare herself to in the caption of this TikTok. I mean, it's it's going to be like Sojourner Truth or something. <laughs> or like Harriet Tubman. Oh my God. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> uh, it's literally Harriet Tubman. God fucking damn it. She mentions like Frida Kahlo and Amelia <laughs> Earhart and like Malala. It's a parade of people who have no business being in the caption of a video like this posted by a woman like this. Malala! How did I miss Malala? I know, dude. A fucking course. I was going to save this for a twist, but like you totally sussed <laughs> it out. It's like the worst thing you can imagine. <laughs> I just, look, if you're talking about someone who's like, I worked for everything I have, to me that often indicates someone who has not done much or any reflecting on the role of race and racism. No. Much less poverty, much less anything else, right? If she had not specifically said women, I would have been like, Dr. King? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Is she going to say Dr. King? So we're going to sort of hit pause on this particular TikTok, and we're going to return to it. This is the, you might be wondering how I got here. Yes. We're putting the TikTok in a little Jurassic Park piece of amber. We're going to we're gonna sort of unpause it when we circle back to it after we get all of the backstory. Great. I'm in. So I'm rewinding us to January 9th, 1983. When Rachel Hollis is born in a place called Weed Patch, California, which is a suburb of Bakersfield, California. It's like 90 minutes outside of L.A. Sure. This is the part of the story where, like, Rachel is the most sympathetic, especially to me because I am also a preacher's kid. Oh. She has a big family. She has three sisters and a brother. She describes growing up in an extremely sheltered childhood, which, again, totally reminded me of mine. Mm. So she says... My father was a Pentecostal minister, and if any of you were raised Pentecostal, you have some idea of what that means. Suffice it to say, Halloween was considered the devil's holiday, and we couldn't take any part in it. We also weren't allowed to listen to secular music, which means anything other than Christian radio, or be cheerleaders. I'm still deeply upset because I would have made one heck of a cheering section, or watch any movies above PG. Mm -hmm. It seems like she really absorbed these rules. She talks about going to a friend's house for a sleepover, and they watch The Bodyguard which is mm. the first R-rated movie she's ever watched. I think she's like 13 or 14 at this point. And she feels when she comes home that her mom can like tell that she's broken this rule. Oh. And so she immediately confesses. Her mom's like, how was it? And she's like, oh, I watched a movie I shouldn't have. And it sounds like someone who's like 
genuinely like trying to do right by her parents and her parents' expectations. Yeah. I mean, she seems like a well-behaved kid. Yeah. She also admits to her credit that she grew up in a really sheltered environment. So when she's in eighth grade, she goes to Disneyland and she talks about like seeing Mm. other races for the first time and like interracial families. And she sees two guys kissing each other and holding hands like in line for the Matterhorn. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know, at the time, she was like looking at people like she was in a zoo, like she had never seen this before. So as you're talking about these places, my dad grew up in Banning, California, which is similarly like, you know, an hour, hour and a half outside of LA, Mm -hmm. economically depressed small town. It would take some work not to see people of color. That is an impressive (laughs) sort of feat. This is also something that resonated with me because she's very vague about the details of growing up. So I'm not sure if she went to a religious school or something, but Mm. being part of a church, especially when your dad is the minister, like that is your entire social life. There you go. And, you know, the famous cliche is that like the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning at 10 a.m. It's actually quite easy, even in diverse communities, if you're, if so much of your life revolves around the church and the church has those demographics, Mm. you're going to be seeing those people, but you're not going to be like meaningfully interacting with other groups. Yeah, that's interesting. I I grew up like hard agnostic. Oh, yeah. We don't know, and there's no way to know, (laughs) and we're leaving it at that. Your dad is Bill Nye. (laughs) (laughs) She also talks about how her parents are, like, fighting all the time. They eventually end up getting divorced. You know, there's four kids, and the parents aren't getting along very well. She says this in a speech later, but I think this encapsulates so much of what will emerge later in her personality. She says, Mm. you know, growing up in a home where you're kind of fighting to get attention. Mm. Later, she says, what this does to a little girl is it teaches her that the only way she can be loved is if she keeps producing. Mm. If she wants to get noticed by her parents, she has to win the science fair. She has to be the best singer in choir. She has to be the best at sports. It's really only these sort of external markers of achievement that her parents know how to notice as something that she has done well. Oh, that's rough. So the big event that happens in her childhood is when she's 14, her brother kills himself. Oh, God. And Rachel discovers his body. Oh, my God. I know. She's 14. He's 16. This is from her first book. She says, my parents never parented me again. I have had more conversations with my 11-year-old about Fortnite than either of my parents have ever had with me about anything I saw that day or the grief I felt or how scared I was in the 23 years since. It sounds like from that time on, her house is just like this silent, ghoulish nightmare. Everyone's dealing with the grief in their own way and acting out in these like really sort of understandably unproductive ways, but like not really processing or talking about what actually happened. That seems really awful and like a lot for everybody to hold. We could do a whole episode on toxic positivity in organized religion. This is something that I have seen. (laughs) This is something that many other people can speak to. It's a thing of like, if you're acknowledging what happened, it's like you're dwelling on it and you're thinking about the past. And the whole Mm -hmm. thing is you're supposed to move past it. But the problem is that doesn't actually allow you to feel anything. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't allow you to form intimacy with other people. The only people in the world who understand what you're going through, you can't actually find communion with them. Yeah, that's so tough. So she responds to this by essentially counting the days until she can leave. She talks in her book of like, I knew I had to get through like three more birthdays and four more Christmases and then I was out of there. Wow, yikes. She says as soon as this happens, she gets on some sort of fast track in high school so she can graduate a year early. And she graduates at 17 and she fucking leaves. 
Like, she's done. I mean, honestly, good for her. Oh, yeah. Is she someone who ever talks about availing herself of any kind of, like, mental health support or treatment? It's interesting. She talks a lot about that, actually. Oh, good. Like, one of the parts of her platform that I wholeheartedly get behind is she's like, we need to normalize going to therapy. There's nothing wrong with going to therapy. I've been in therapy for years. It helped me deal with my trauma. It helped me deal with my upbringing. And like, if you're feeling stuff, you should probably consider therapy. That's great. Yes. And I want to pause here because I think we're, we're going to talk, and maybe we already have, about like Rachel at her worst. But I also think that like this, this is Rachel at her best. Mm. And I, I should say before we get into sort of the problematic content of her books, etc., that like she's an extremely gifted writer and like an mm. unbelievably good public speaker. She's really charismatic. Mm. Like you watch one of her talks and you're like, I totally get why people listen to every mm. single thing that this woman has to say. So I want to send you an excerpt from one of her early blog posts where she's talking about her brother and sort of processing grief. And I think this like really encapsulates like why she's a compelling and likable writer and speaker. Okay, am I am I reading? Let's do it. Go for it. Okay. As I write this, it strikes me that he's been gone for 17 years, which means that he's been gone for as long as he was here with us. You never truly recover from the loss of someone you love, but time passes and stretches out and it doesn't hurt as badly as it used to. You can manage a minute, then an hour, and then whole days without remembering what's missing. And then you realize how long it's been. You realize that next year he'll have been gone longer than he was here. That thought slams into you. And just like the day he died, you lose your breath and you're not sure how you'll catch it again. She's a good writer. She's a really good writer. And all of that is really real and true about grief. Really real and true. Really, really real and true. She's writing this in the sort of early 2010s on her blog. And this is before she becomes a motivational guru. And mm. what she does is oftentimes when she tells stories in her books, she'll tell an anecdote like this and then she'll immediately switch and turn it into universal advice. She's oh. going to be like, and that's why you should always remember who you love. Or like, that's oh. why we should always keep close the people close to us or something. I'm just imagining the guy from Arrested Development. And that's why you always leave a note. Her career has a very, like, that's why you always leave a note kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. Like these little, like, pat lessons at the ends of these stories. Sometimes even when they don't really fit all that well. And I think what mm. makes this passage strong is that she's not trying to make it relatable. She's not trying to relate it to me. And like, I I can't relate to something like this. Like, I, I really can't imagine what it's like to go through what she went through. Mm. And like, that's fine. She's just telling a story and she's expressing what it feels like to her. And that's it. This is sort of like where I wish that she had stayed. There's a real nugget of like truth and some insight in here, but she just ends up burying it under all these like platitudes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question with all of this stuff is like, once you've got a platform, what do you do with that platform? Exactly. And it sounds like part of the way that she built that platform is through these like real genuine gut-wrenching kind of moments, right? And then once she sort of built out that platform, she like took a turn and was like prescriptive. Exactly. And then it just it's just like boring refrigerator magnet stuff. Mm -hmm. So in 2000, she moves to L.A. She originally enrolls in acting school, but she ends up getting an internship at Miramax and dropping out immediately. Oh, no. The Miramax thing is not going where you think it is. No, that's, I don't mean not, it's just a, just a cursed allegiance. <laughs> it's what feels like it's happening. So this is where she meets 
Dave. Mm. Dave will eventually become her husband. She is an executive assistant at the time. He is, I had to go to his LinkedIn profile because like both of them are so vague about like what jobs they actually had at any given time. Mm -hmm. At the time, he was the assistant brand manager for Miramax Home Video. And you can tell from his LinkedIn profile that Dave Hollis was one of these guys that was just like management fast track. Uh He graduates from Pepperdine in the late 1990s. And then his LinkedIn is like year-long stints in like higher and higher level positions. It's like assistant director, then like regional director, then director, then like VP. Mm. He starts out at like Columbia Records, and then he ends up managing Destiny's Child. What? Like I guess when they toured with their first album, they were like not that big. He managed the entire U.S. tour. We're already like two degrees of separation from Beyonce at this point in the episode. He gets this job at Miramax. He's there for like a year and a half. And then he ends up working the rest of his career at Disney. So he pretty quickly becomes like a reasonably high-level Disney executive. Huh. Interestingly, like this is such a weird trajectory. He now also is a fucking self-help guru. So he also has a book. You gotta get your best life lessons from a Pepperdine grad who was fast-tracked in management. And who regularly describes his job as the easiest job in the world. Oh no! He's like, I was head of distribution for Disney while they were producing like Marvel movies and Star Wars movies. Uh-huh. He's like, I didn't have to do anything. I was just like, hello, China. We'd like to show our movie in your country. And they're like, okay. Yeah. Why am I taking advice from you again? Is it okay if I look up a picture of Dave Hollis? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wait, let's let's Google together. Here we go. You know what some of these pictures look like is he looks like a little bit of like Clark Kent. Yeah, he's got the glasses. All American, white dude. Yeah. He's got the glasses. A lot of chambray shirts. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, my wife is big on Instagram, so these photos are washed out in this particular way. <laughs> What does she look like? She has a blowout in every single one of these pictures. Mm-hmm. She uh, looks to be very petite. Mm-hmm. Many of these photos include her sort of throwing her head back and laughing, or she looks to be like giggling or smiling at him or mm-hmm. whatever. It's like the kind of vibe of Instagram photos that is like when they try and sort of capture the same kinds of moments as like engagement photos, Ooh, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, look how much fun we have together. And they're all very clearly posed, but they're all also pretending not to be posed. Uh-huh. It's like, yes. you just happen to have caught us like this. You could see her having like, she would have like a live, laugh, love sign, but it would be like handmade by somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would be one of her own quotes. Correct. So when they meet, he's like a quote unquote lowly, like mid-level executive at Miramax. He is 26 and she is 18. And there's a fascinating like Rashomon thing where they both in their respective books describe their courtship periods. She describes herself, I think extremely accurately, as like the most sheltered person in America, right? She grew up in this extremely religious household. She then has Mm. this traumatic event. She alludes to some boys that she's maybe kissed, kind of, sort of, in high school, but she's never had a boyfriend before. Mm. He is 26 years old. He's been, you know, he's been touring with Destiny's Child. He understands the industry. He's kind of on the fast track to success. In his book, this is so telling, he describes her as 18 going on 29. No. And it's like he tries to do this whole thing that she's like wise beyond her years. No. She's clearly intelligent, but like this is one of the most naive people on planet Earth in the year 2000. I also think that that thing of like 18 going on 29, like 
feels like reminiscent of the stuff that's like she might have been 16 but she was all woman right it just gets really creepy that's not totally what he's doing here but it just i I don't know man it just feels like a it feels like a red flag there's a huge power differential here yes (laughs) like yes he is he's not her direct boss but he's like in the management layer of a company that she works at and she's at the lowest rung of the ladder Mm -hmm. so I guess he had spoken to Rachel a couple times on the phone because she's, like, answering the phones for this guy that she's the executive assistant to. He finally shows up at the office, and she describes it as, like, love at first sight. Wow. He walks in wearing, like, a business suit and, like, a leather carrier bag. And she says that, like, our eyes met, and it was, like, so cool that he's this, like, business suit guy, but he also has, like, a leather carrier bag. Just like, I don't know, a lot of people have those, but <laughs> fine. He's wearing a suit, but also he had a Kenneth Cole reaction bag. <laughs> <laughs> I smelled Axe body spray as soon as he walked in. <laughs> it seems like after they have this kind of meet cute when she sees him for the first time, they start flirting. At one point in some interview, she says that like they were emailing rap lyrics back and forth. What? And they just like they're like we used to email rap lyrics back and forth. LOL. But like I'm like wait details. I for some reason with these two, I imagine it's not gonna be like Wu Tang. I know <laughs> it's gonna be like Young MCs bust a move. It's Tickle Tune Typhoon. <laughs> I think they think that's right. <laughs> the whole rest of this chapter where she's describing their courtship is just like flapping red flags in the breeze. Uh-huh. He asks her out on their first date. She shows up at the date and she's dressed in the nines and he's just like in a sweatshirt and jeans. Uh huh. And then listen to this fucking nightmare. She says, we were seated at a table. He ordered a bottle of wine. I hope you're not one of those girls who's afraid to eat on a date. He laughed. It annoyed Ugh. me. I know. I know. It annoyed me too, Rachel. I didn't like the comparison to anyone else. Didn't like the reminder that this wasn't his very first date too. I responded by eating more than half the pizza we were sharing. He talked about himself for two hours straight. I didn't mind. I was fascinated. Oh, Rachel. <laughs> My God. Oh, I Rachel. Know. Run for the hills. I know where this story goes, and still I want better for her. I know. <laughs> than this. I mean, it just only gets worse. So then, of course, they go on one date, and she immediately starts, like, thinking, like, well, now we're dating. Like, he's my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. They go on a second date to, like, a hip soup place. (laughs) I don't understand how LA works. So I guess they go on the second date, and they're emailing back and forth, and he asks her, like, where'd you go to college? And this is the moment where she has to, like, disclose that, like, I'm actually 19. I just got out of high school. She says in her book, she's like, you know, I broke broke it to him. And then she says, he responded like a champ. He told me I was Doogie Hauser. And did I feel like some sort of child prodigy? Because not only did I have this job, but I was also in a real relationship with a grown-up. Nope. 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 <laughs> nope. And, like, she she describes this as, like, she's revealing something embarrassing to him. Like, I'm only 19. And then she's like, he responded great. Like, he took it great. But, like, what is there to take? He's in a relationship with, like, a really naive hot 19 year old who's like very easy to manipulate also like unless you're dating like a member of the wiggles i don't necessarily (laughs) want to date someone who describes themselves as like a grown-up in a way that's like a prize can you imagine no thank you no thank you so it seems like he kind of tries to break up with her at this point but she like really lobbies to stay together 
she says like very quickly after this conversation, she's like spending almost every night at his apartment. Uh-oh. I don't think she realizes at the time, but she realizes now that she was like kind of a booty call that like they didn't really do uh-huh. anything together. And whenever they went out with his friends, his friends would refer to her as the 19 year old. Ew. And he would like invite her over late at night. Like they're not having like sex sex at this point, but like they're fooling around. Right. They're doing the my dad is a Pentecostal minister version. Exactly. There's also this thing where like they go to a house party together and she introduces him like, oh, it's my boyfriend, Dave. And then he gets so mad at her for introducing him as her boyfriend that he doesn't talk to her for two weeks. What? He just sucks ass. And this goes on for a year. Jesus Christ. His explanation of all of this, of course, in his book, he's like super vague. He's like, I didn't always treat Rachel so great during that time. But like Uh he doesn't get into specifics. And then he has this whole thing that I guess he had just gotten out of a long-term relationship with somebody else. And he's like, I was afraid to trust. I realized immediately when I met Rachel that like she was something special and I was afraid of how strong my feelings were. So I like pushed her away. Uh It's just making me realize how many dudes have like told me that shit. And like, that's just a way of covering up for their like miserable behavior. Yeah, that's right. Or for being like, I wasn't actually that into this person. Yeah. Or I didn't think they were deserving of my respect. Totally. I sort of clench up when people talk about pushing someone away because I'm like, ah, maybe that's what's happening. So the next chapter of the story, he gets transferred to Minneapolis for one of these like moving his way up the corporate ladder Disney things. And she says that she loses her virginity to him as like a way of keeping him. Oh, no. He moves to Minneapolis. They try it long distance. It seems like that only lasts like a couple weeks. He basically calls to like break up with her and is like, I can't do this. She's devastated. She's crying. She's just like completely destroyed by this. And then I guess a couple days go by. He calls her to be like, how are you? Like just checking in. And she says, this is in her book. She says, calmly and without any dramatics, I told him I am done with this. I am done with you. Don't ever call me again. Wow. Why? He choked out. Because I don't deserve to be treated like this. Because I can't go back and forth. Because I don't like what I've become. But mostly because you said we were friends. I don't want to be friends if this is how you treat someone you care about. Wow. She hangs up and goes to sleep, bone dry eyes. Just like at peace. Good. And then the most fucking disappointing twist to this entire story. So it's like she goes to sleep. Everything's fine. Like Dave's out of her life. And then very next paragraph, you're going to scream. I woke up to someone banging on my front door. No. (laughs) Michael. No. It's like the worst twist. It's the thing that they do in movies. And you're like, this is rapey and bad. Like this would never work in real life. But it appears to have worked in real life. And then I guess he like shows up to like declare his love for her. And then... This is atrocious. She doesn't get into details, but she says, This is the great part of the story. This is the moment that feels like a movie or a romance novel. This is where I tell you that I woke up and found my husband on the other side of the front step. The man who treated me badly, who had strung me along, and who couldn't make up his mind was lost somewhere between his parents' house and my apartment that night. I know it seems dramatic, but that's really what happened. I mean, the thing that's like hard about this is she's right in that that is a lot of romance stories, right? Like we have a lot of things that are pitched as romantic narratives that are like pretty profoundly manipulative or abusive. So I'm like, she's right. It does sound like a 
movie or something but i'm like don't the movies are bad too the movies are very bad ah. and then this is the thing that she always does is she takes this story and then she like turns it into this like universal bumper sticker advice rule uh -oh. so she says in the next couple paragraphs people will treat you with as much or as little respect as you allow them to and our dysfunctional relationship started the first time he treated me badly and i accepted it uh. Uh, like this is sort of the problem with this entire approach is it's not clear from this story that you can draw like a universal lesson that's right i mean she seems to have won like some sort of weird lottery where like the guy who treated her like shit seemed like he did turn out to be a pretty good husband mm-hmm but most people don't win that lottery. Mm. In like 99 out of 100 of these cases where somebody treats you like this, the ending is he knocks on the door and you take him back and then he treats you like shit again. Yeah. I, oh. Sorry, I'm like having a hard time <laughs> gathering my thoughts about this because it's so, it's so shitty because right, like part of what she's trying to do is remind people in relationships and predominantly women in relationships um, that they have agency mm -hmm. but also like part of what that does is it like falls back on this like old shitty rhetoric about like it's on women to be gatekeepers to access to themselves in relationships with men i don't know man it just feels bad it feels just so feels bad. bad and icky so the next thing that happens in the story is rachel sort of begins the on-ramp to becoming a nationally famous influencer. Mm. And this begins in 2004 when she starts her own high-end events company. Okay. So it's called Chic Events. And one of the things that made me go down a huge rabbit hole on this, she, you know, she, she's been the subject of a million sort of like People Magazine glossy profiles, like meet uh -huh. Rachel Hollis. And there's all this like weird, vague phrasing where they'll just be like, after she worked at Miramax, she struck out on her own and started an events company. Mm. In her book, she says, I went from production company to another production company and had the opportunity to do event planning. Mm -hmm. In another profile, they say like, chic events like started in her garage. There's no like origin story. <laughs> yeah, there's, it, it's conspicuous to me that she has written three books. Her husband has also written a book. Mm. And in none of these books is just a chronological account of how she went from being like a very low level executive assistant at Miramax to running her own company at age 21. Yeah. She needs to actually explain how this happened and how she was able to do it. Right. This is the, um, I started this business with $5 in my pocket sort of thing where you're like, what? No, you didn't. You absolutely did not. So I had to go to her fucking LinkedIn profile to get a timeline. She's at Miramax for 18 months. Then she goes to Ogilvy & Mather, which is this huge PR firm, where she's an account mm -hmm. coordinator for Mattel and Motorola. Mm -hmm. And then for another, like, eight months, she's a brand coordinator for something called DIC Entertainment. I think that this is where she gets experience in event planning. She, she mentions offhand that she got laid off at Miramax or they downsized or something. And somebody was like, hey, there's a premiere tonight. Do you want to help organize it? Huh. So we learn... From her husband's book, he's very explicit about this, that, like, he supported her financially. Mm -hmm. And extremely importantly, neither of them say how she got her first couple clients. Planning high-end parties is, like, really high stakes and really difficult. Yeah. We've all watched, like, My Super Sweet 16. Like, the things that rich people want at these events are completely deranged. Yeah, they're wild. I found this, like, weird like 2013 interview with her mm -hmm. where she says her first 
party that she ever organized, her first event, was some rich family who was celebrating their son becoming an Eagle Scout, and she said their budget is the size of some small island nations. So it's like, how is a 21-year-old getting like a five-figure event gig with like basically like six, eight months of experience as like presumably a low-level employee for an events planning company? That's bananas. Like every part of that's a Mad Lib. Reading between the lines, she has to be using Dave's connections at Disney to be getting these clients. She eventually does events for Bradley Cooper. She does Al Gore, something, something, Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, she does. Like, you can find old People magazine articles. If you go, like, back into Google, there's old articles about, like, some sitcom actress on, like, some CW show that I've never heard of is, like, planning her wedding to, like, this pop star. And, like, it's being planned by Rachel Hollis. Like, she's a very successful celebrity event planner for like a decade. I do like that we get like really lovely feedback and compliments from people being like, it's so wonderful to hear a show that's so deeply researched and reported. And I'm like, yeah, we're <laughs> fucking around in the People Magazine archives. <laughs> I'm on archive.org every day. <laughs> Primary sources. <laughs> I, I have talked on You're Wrong about a million times about how like, I don't, I don't even really believe that the concept of like a gold digger like exists. Like I feel really weird mm-hmm. seeming like I'm criticizing somebody for using her husband's money and connection. Mm. I think like use your husband's money. I don't care. I have financially supported people I've dated. I've gotten financial support from people I've dated. Like all of this is totally fine. And like normal and lovely. Even. It's super lovely. If these are husband connections, that's like a good move from a husband who's not always been the king of good moves. Exactly. It's like, this is your dream. I'm going to help you achieve your dream. Like this seems like a nice yeah. thing to do. But then it's just very conspicuous for someone who's a lifestyle influencer, a motivational influencer, who is giving advice to other people on how to, like, make it, on how to be successful. And her whole thing is, like, wake up early and, like, get rid of self-doubt and all of this, like, you have the power within you. If your career is the result of your husband being a high-level Disney executive who knows a billion celebrities. Yeah, that's Just right. fucking own it. This is someone who's giving advice, but it's not just someone who's giving advice. It's someone who's saying, everything is in your own control. Exactly. Yeah, man, of course you can do it on your own if you've got a husband with, like, extreme connections in LA and you've got startup capital, presumably from exactly his salary is presumably pretty generous. The vagueness of it feels like it points to some stuff she doesn't want to talk about. Well, it renders all of her advice moot. Mm -hmm. She's very explicit about this, that she's like, this will work for anyone. Anyone can do it if you just work hard enough, right? Get up at 4am, make, make time for yourself. And it's like, Rachel, you didn't get here by making time for yourself or by getting up at 4 a.m. Work harder, immigrants. Exactly. She she seems like a really hardworking person, and she's clearly intelligent. Uh But there's a huge difference between building a skyscraper from the ground up and building a skyscraper from, like, a 99-story building. (laughs) So we're now in 2008. She has this successful events planning company, but it's very obvious that Rachel wants more. Uh And... I, I, I want to be very careful here because I think women are criticized for having ambition in a way that men aren't. Uh-huh. Rachel was, like, very openly ambitious. Like, she she talks in her book about, like, wanting to be wealthy and, like, wanting to have a vacation home in Hawaii. And honestly, fine. Sure. Like, men talk about this shit all the time. 
right? Like sure. I wanted to be a billionaire when I was five years old and we're like, wow, what an ambitious kid and it's cool. Like it was clear that Rachel wanted to have a larger platform. So even when she has this events planning company, she starts showing up on daytime TV. Like she shows up on like the Rachel Ray show uh-huh. and on like the Steve Harvey show as like a sort of cooking lifestyle events guru, like how to make the perfect martini and stuff like that. Uh-huh. She also in 2008, she's deleted these archives, but in 2008, she became kind of like a mommy blogger. Uh-huh. It, it's hard to imagine this because it's not that long ago, but Instagram is not invented until 2010. <laughs> the, the, the word influencer is not in the dictionary until 2019. And it's uh-huh. only like 2015, 2016 when people even kind of start using it in the parlance that we do today. And in 2008, 2012, you know, the internet is sort of starting to catapult these people with like recipe blogs advice blogs like these people are kind of becoming celebrities in their own right Mm -hmm. the whole influencer thing is basically a marketing innovation it's basically brands realizing that you know word of mouth is a much more effective form of marketing than advertisements like if you see an advertisement with michael jordan and he's like wear this Mm -hmm. cologne you like understand that you're being advertised to so that's going to exert less of an influence but if your friend is like i just tried this cologne it's really nice you should try it you trust them as a trusted source. Yeah, or someone who you don't know, but speaks to you like you are a friend, which really seems to be the Rachel Hollis whole thing. Well, exactly. And this is the whole this is the whole influencer segment of the market, is that mm-hmm. these are people who are public figures, but people have relationships to them that are much more like a friend. And mm-hmm. marketers start to notice this and they're like, wait a minute, people are like really taking seriously what this like recipe blogger lady says. And if she says like, you should buy this brand of pickles, people will go out and buy that brand of pickles. Mm -hmm. So the pickle people are like, hmm, maybe we can just pay her to talk about our pickles. And that's how we get the economy that we have now. Mm -hmm. Rachel's very lucky in that she got in on this early. And around this period, around 2008 to 2015, it's very obvious that she wants to catapult herself to some sort of influencer status, even though that doesn't that term doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. This is very clearly what she's going for. And she tries like three different approaches to getting there. Uh-huh. The first is she launches in 2013 a website called The Chic Site. It's a lifestyle website. It's basically like MarthaStewart.com. I imagine tablescapes being part of that. A lot of tables. Yeah. A lot of like nice photography. It's clear that she's hired people to write for it. She's hired people to present it really professionally. The whole, the archives are still up. This is where I got the blog post about her brother. Mm. I think with this website, I think she was kind of trying to make herself into like a Rachel Ray or like an Ina Garten Mm. kind of figure. This was also a time when like, I feel like the Food Network was like a bigger deal then too. Mm -hmm. She published two cookbooks during this time. Whoa. It also feels like worth lifting up like the level that you have to be at both in terms of exposure and in terms of dollars in the door to be able to do a project like this. Dude, right? I mean, this is another privilege thing. Like, it's this is not a mommy blog. No. This is a professional operation with professional photographs and, like, web developers. So we're talking about a team of, like, numerous people professionally working on this. Yes. So, I mean, just, like, take a minute, everybody, and think about how much more money you would need to be making than you are right now to support either multiple contracts or multiple full-time staff exactly. or part-time staff. Like, there is money happening. Exactly. Her other play for influencer status, do you remember Chick Lit? The concept of Chick Lit? Yeah. Do you remember this? Yeah, absolutely. It was like books. Devil Wears Prada was one of them. Le Divorce was one of them. Yes. Yes, totally. This was just a thing in book publishing. There were a lot of like books written 
kind of by women for women. Mm-hmm. You know, like Bridget Jones's diary was like one of the original ones. It's like women like dealing with stuff. Yep. I feel like the entertainment industries are constantly rediscovering that women spend money on things and they're like women buy books and it's just like yeah that period. It, it was the utter shock that like bridesmaids both was good and made money hollywood is a goldfish <laughs> so this is fucking wild between 2014 and 2016 she publishes three novels what <laughs> yes and this is wild i found quite a few reviews of them and like i guess they're good huh. everyone who has read them says that, like, they're well-written and, like, well-plotted, decent fiction. So at the same time, somehow, as she's, like, running this website and, like, mommy blogging, she also finds time to write a novel based on her experiences as a event planner. So it's it's called Party Girl. It's, like, a, a kid from the sticks moves to the big city L.A. And, like, these are her adventures in the wacky world of event planning. Sure, it's a little Romana Clef. Yes. Yeah. And so... This is, like, also to her credit, she, I guess she pitches it to a bunch of New York publishers, again, which you have to have connections to get those meetings, but fine. These are all secular publishers, mm-hmm. and they all say that, like, there's not enough sex in the book, and Rachel mm-hmm. is a Christian. And so Rachel's like, no, I want it to be about a Christian girl from the sticks and her wacky adventures, but her wacky adventures don't necessarily involve sex. Like, they involve romance and other things. And so all of these publishers pass, and she says... She cried for like an hour and then she stood up and she Googled how to self-publish a novel. Mm. And so she self-published this book, I guess, word of mouth. It started selling like five copies a week, 10 copies a week, 100 copies a week, and just became this rolling snowball. And then as it started to get more attention, a Christian publisher sort of found it and found that it was becoming this deal on the internet and offered to give her a real publishing deal. Oh. And then she publishes two sequels over the next two years. I mean, that is like good work. Yeah, it's it's actually like a kind of a nice story. Yeah, she didn't compromise her creative vision or her values or her worldview or any of that kind yes. of stuff. I get, I get that. <laughs> this is wild. So, okay, the third play for influencer status. So as she's becoming Martha Stewart and she's also becoming Bridget Jones' diary, uh-huh. she also kind of tries to become a YouTuber. Oh, what? This is also peak clickbait YouTube videos. This is when YouTube Uh was like becoming a thing. Is this the era of YouTube that's like, uh, you won't believe what happens two minutes in? This one weird trick. Yes. She she has one of her videos is called American Tries Filipino Food. No. This was like a genre of YouTube videos, like viral YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. White people trying like non-American food. Yeah. It's it's like one of the cringiest things I've ever seen. She's like, oh, it tastes like fish. It's just like her like mocking this cuisine. It's so gross. All right. So I'm I'm sending you this Rachel's play for viral fame. Here we go. Oh, my God. Mom fashion. I get up every day at 5 a.m. And every time the alarm goes off, I want to cry because it's still dark outside and I don't have to get up that early, but I really wanted to write a book and I really wanted to get in shape and I really wanted to make sure that my kids ate something healthy before they left for school. And the truth is that we all get the same 24 hours. Oprah has the same 24 hours and Beyonce and Paralympians and that mom you know that has six pack abs even though she has four kids. We all get those same hours, but you have to decide how to use them. And I hate with a passion of a thousand sons waking up that early, but it's the only time that I have for my dreams. So you have to decide if your dreams are worth 
losing some sleep. <sighs> I keep going back to thinking about those charts that are like how many hours you have to work a minimum wage job to afford a one bedroom apartment. Oh my God, I know. And it'll be like, in California, you have to work 120 hours at yeah. minimum wage to afford a you know market rate one bedroom and all that sort of stuff. So I'm like, yeah, man, I guess we all get the same 24 hours. Not all of us are married to somebody who works for Disney or run event sites. Yeah. The other thing that I am noticing about this video is it is as you say, very of that moment of YouTube. And today, as we watch this in 2021, this video published in 2014, it has 10,598 views. I know. Which is not a lot of views. It didn't go viral the way that she It did not go viral, Rachel. My favorite thing is... I am primed to notice this because she does this throughout her career. She pretends to be telling you something embarrassing. Like, this is called mom fashions. Yeah. I'm about to admit to something, which is that I work all the time and you better work harder. Like, what? And then it's like... (laughs) I wake up early and like, I hate waking up early, but anyway, I work harder than you. And you're like, Rachel, like, what, what part of this is like a confession? I do appreciate that you and I just instinctually descended into Christian Bale Batman voice. (laughs) (laughs) She also, this is one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen. She also has one called I'm married dot, dot, dot. And I'm dating someone. Come on. And is it like, I date my husband, I take my husband on dates, and (laughs) that's how we keep it alive. Fuck (laughs) off. It's like the most obvious thing. Because I saw the title, I was like, she's not really going to do this. Like, this must must be like a twist, right? And then she's like, I'm dating someone. I'm dating my husband. You're like, all right, Rachel. I'm having an affair with my best friend. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Okay, Rachel. I'm like, she talks in here about, like, she hates getting up early. I don't believe leave her once you watch like an hour of her videos you realize she just gives you the same advice over and over again Mm. and it's always get up early like that's one of the only pieces of advice she actually has like actionable advice and i will say as a morning person myself Mm. fellow morning people shut the fuck up about getting (laughs) up early it doesn't make you a better person like i have been a morning person since I was like 13 years old, I would be getting up at like five in the morning. So I would do homework before school. Oh, buddy. It doesn't make me virtuous. It doesn't make me productive. It's just like genetically upbringing. Like, I don't know what it is, but like, I did not choose to be this way. I just, I, I have my my best, most creative hours are in the morning and other people have their best, most creative hours from like 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. Yeah. There's no moral difference between those two things. Yes. And you and I both know there will sometimes be days at a time where you don't get shit done on the project that you're most excited about. Weeks, Aubrey. There will be weeks. But that's not a saleable perspective. And it's not one that gets people excited and feeling like, I could do it too. Exactly. I think we should make a maintenance phase self-help book that is just like long questions and like really complex ethical dilemmas from people and her answer is always just it depends i don't know i I would need more information it depends on what your situation is i don't know (laughs) i was thinking we should do a maintenance phase self-help book that's just and like advice book that's just like aggressively honest about your schedule and mine (laughs) oh every time i get stuck on something i take the dog for a walk so the dog gets between five and seven walks a day (laughs) if i don't want to get started on something then i get real big into meal prep dude i basically didn't do any writing for like three months of summer because i was playing stardew valley (laughs) 
<laughs> so do you want to see the thing that finally catapults Rachel into national attention? Yes, I do. This is it. She has been trying to go viral for seven years now, since roughly 2008. And in 2015, this happens. I'm sending you a clip where she's describing what she does and how she goes viral for the first time. I really enjoy a, a clips show. Will you show the picture? Yeah, that one. Did anyone see that? Couple people. Um, so uh, when this post went crazy, um, the question that I got over and over from um, press was, what was your intention? Um, and the truth is, uh, I theme my Instagram every month to a color, and March was orange. And so I had this super cute uh, bikini top, and I'm Southern, so I love a monogram. And so it had the monogram, and it was orange, and I was like, oh my gosh, my Instagram followers are gonna dig this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna post this picture. So um, my husband had to uh, speak at something down in Cancun, such a hardship, and I went with him. We got a weekend away from the boys. Um, so I said, hey, Dave, will you go down to the beach with me and you, will you take a picture? Dave took this picture, and the first thing I see is my stretch marks. And I, as I was looking at it, I thought, you know, gosh, I've never seen a woman that I know post a picture of herself with stretch marks from a place of pride. So I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna leave it in. I have a few, um, a lot of my followers are moms. I have a lot of girlfriends who follow me, so I'm gonna just leave it in and they're totally gonna get a kick out of this. So um, this is what I wrote under the picture. I have stretch marks and I wear a bikini. I have a belly that's permanently flabby from carrying three giant babies and I wear a bikini. My belly button is saggy, which is something I didn't even know was possible before kids. <laughs> and I wear a bikini. I wear a bikini because I'm proud of this body and every mark on it. Those marks prove that I was blessed enough to carry my babies, and that flabby tummy means I worked hard to lose what weight I could. I wear a bikini because the only man whose opinion matters know what I went, knows what I went through to look this way. That same man says he's never seen anything sexier than my body, marks and all. They aren't scars, ladies. They're stripes, and you've earned them. Flaunt that body with pride. <laughs> we got to the health and wellness section of the episode. Fucking Jesus. <laughs> I totally get that this is a real and empowering and meaningful thing yes. to people. And also, I understand that those same people will be like, get it. Those are tiger stripes. You did earn your stripes. You earned that belly. Yeah. And I'm like, what about people who didn't fucking earn the belly? What about people who didn't do the things that you think make it okay? Right. Just, I have a really strong, visceral, and negative reaction to this kind of stuff because it's all the shit that's like, you should love your body, but not if it looks like that. This this post gets 10 million hits. Oh, God. It's this sensation. It's a massive deal. We understand that this kind of rhetoric coming from like this kind of person on that platform, 99 times out of 100, comes with like, but, you know, yeah. other women shouldn't be doing this or just immediate shift to judgment of other people. Yes. It's the I'm body positive as long as you're happy and healthy. And I'm like, yes. well, depressed people should be able to be body positive too. And people totally. who are not perceived as being healthy should be able to like have good feelings about their bodies. The reason I wanted to include a clip from this talk, because it's like a 30 minute long talk. She opens with describing this picture and how it went viral. And it was this source of like huge pride. She got these like thousands of messages from other women talking about how meaningful it was. And then she immediately, without any acknowledgement, 
that this is what she's doing, she shifts into weight loss advice. She's just like, you know, the things that I was putting into my body were like really gross. And then I saw a nutritionist and the nutritionist was like, would you feed your kids like this? No. And then I realized I shouldn't be eating like that either. And it's like, wait a minute, two minutes ago, you were saying your body like doesn't matter. People should have pride. But then you're also like now telling me how I can lose 10 pounds to look different. That's how it always all shows up. Exactly. It is this sort of thing where I'm like, are you not going to acknowledge that you're, I'm going to lose 10 pounds post baby or even 20 or 30 pounds post baby is like, maybe not the entire world of weight loss. And like, are you not going to acknowledge that like this kind of weird facile logic also very directly feeds into deep judgments of fat people? Yes. It's so frustrating because I don't want to take away anybody's ability to sort of like work through their own body stuff. Stuff, I know. But also people overwhelmingly do that in a way that deeply, deeply reinforces and relies on their own biases against fatness and fat people. No. I don't know, man. It's just, it's a real mess. I, I, I don't like to take things away from people, but like the minute I saw this, I could feel myself pulling out like a bucket labeled like, that's problematic. <laughs> and, like, and like filling it up with juice it's also telling that in the caption of that photo because of course you're training people how to react to the photo with the caption that you post yep. she says like i've lost as much weight as i can oh god we're not trained to see photos without all that context and have the same reaction also she has this photo that's her with again some sort of like loose skin from pregnancy and weight loss and whatever else she also has a visible fucking thigh gap. Yes. I don't, uh, uh, I don't know, man. I just feel like such a dick when I talk about this stuff. We're like, it's like both of us are like tensed <sighs> up. We're like a thin white woman is doing body positivity. Totally. Like, totally. Like, oh, here it comes. It's, it's <laughs> when you can feel the ramp up to fight or flight, but you're not all the way there yet. Yes. Uh, that is the response that I'm having. It's just like, <laughs> I know this person is going to say, horrific fucking shit about people who look like me and then if i say anything about it they'll go you just don't want me to love my body and you're just jealous i know how this conversation goes what about the dove ads oh shut the fuck up what about the dove (laughs) okay the other thing that i really want to talk about in this clip and i don't know if you noticed this is the baffling fucking lies that she tells. Oh, I did not notice this. Did you notice in the beginning, she says like, I'm Southern and we love a monogram. Oh, oh, yes, I did hear that. And I was like, she said, I'm Southern. And she keeps going, y'all. You're from Bakersfield, California. You're from where my dad is from. If you listen to the whole talk, she does this numerous times where she's, she says later, she's like, I'm Southern and you know we love a fake lash. Is there any anything about her living in the South ever? Again, like this is why you get obsessed with this person is because you're like, she's telling weird fucking lies. And then I spend like hours on the internet being like Rachel Hollis, the South, mm-hmm. like Rachel Hollis, Texas, Rachel Hollis, Louisiana. <laughs> the closest thing I could find is that I think her dad might be from Texas because she talks when she was growing up, how her dad had some sort of like corporate hmm. job where they, they had offices in California and offices in West Texas. And I guess a couple times, it seems two, three, four times, as a kid, she and her dad would drive to West Texas together and have like a road trip and then a road trip back. So that indicates to me that like maybe they had family there. Mm-hmm. Also, like my dad is from Ohio. I don't go around being like, I'm a Midwestern. You know us Midwesterners. Right. I totally. straightforwardly grew up in Seattle. Yes. And this is like a pattern that 
shows up in like throughout her books. In this presentation, she talks about how her and Dave, after they get married, she says like, we didn't have much money, but like we scraped together enough savings to travel to Europe for the first time. What? And it's like, Rachel, he's, he was a, he was an executive at Disney. Like you didn't scrimp and save. Yeah. Again, I don't care. <laughs> like go to Europe, but it's weird to build this mythology around yourself yeah. of like, we were like two hard scrabble young people and like somehow we made it to Europe. It's like he was making seven figures. There's like a little bit of Hilaria Baldwin happening here. Dude, I know. I kept thinking about that. Como si dice cucumber. <laughs> a little bit of that. So this photo goes like mega super duper viral. This catapults her into another level of fame. I believe, again, she hasn't really said this, but I think this is how she gets publishers sniffing around to publish Girl, Wash Your Face. Ah, gotcha. She's selling empowerment to a conservative Christian audience, which is also a really interesting thing in that there had been sort of, you know, body positivity and stuff. Like, this was sort of bubbling under the surface, but it was mostly a left-wing thing at that point. Mm. There's this movement on the left, but all of a sudden you have this person who's like the perfect avatar and vessel for that who's speaking to right-wing women. Mm. And when that post goes like super duper viral, they realize that like there's money in them dar hills. Like you can sell an empowerment message to conservatives. So before we get to the content of Rachel's books, I cannot help myself. And I want to talk about her podcast, (laughs) which she launches in 2017. I was trying to absorb like a a kind of representative sample. Uh And one of the first episodes that I went to is a podcast episode called How to Start a Podcast. Oh. So we are going to watch another clip. You are, okay, you are going to die. Okay. I was like, I just want a 12 episode season. So then I needed to find 12 people who would let me interview them. And I did not have any of the connections that I have now. I had no idea who to ask. Really, I mean, like, I had like five followers. Nobody really cared about what I was doing. And like, oh, hi, I'm, you know, over here trying to start a podcast. Will you let me interview you? People were like, no, or they wouldn't respond at all. So I had to get really creative. And that first season, to be honest, like it's a bit of a miracle that people said yes, because I don't think that I really had earned the right to like ask them. I honestly think so much in life is having the courage to try, is having the audacity to just ask because you really never know. And I just asked. And just to give you a little insight there, I asked in a really concise and professional way. So I would get contact information and in that in those days it was an email and I would say, I have this podcast and you know, here's what I'm doing and here's the why, here's how many followers I have on social media. I'll make myself available to your schedule. Please let me know if you can do it. I think that the reason that a handful of people said yes is that I was concise, I was quick. I told them I would make myself available to their schedule because people are always super busy. And I had some stats. So I was like, here's how many followers I have on Facebook or here's what I'm doing on Instagram. So I had something that was like, there's not, like people will listen to this. Thoughts. Yeah. I'm going to say a similar thing to what I said in our Shallow Hal bonus episode, which is this is a rich text full of bad points. I know. I mean, I guess my question for you is like, does it get to be something you can actually operationalize? No. All she's doing is repackaging her own experience, but like being kind of vague about it because she doesn't want to admit how many connections and how much privilege she has. So she's talking around the fact 
that like my husband is a Disney executive. At the time I started my podcast in 2017, I had more than 100,000 Instagram followers. I had a mega viral photo. I had written three novels. Right. So like what she actually did to launch her podcast is like she called up her connections. Right. One of her first podcast guests is Joy Cho, also like a lifestyle influencer. And Joy Cho, years before, had given a blurb to Rachel for her cookbook. So oh. if you look at her cookbook, it's like, I like cooking these recipes, Joy Cho on the back or whatever. So they already had some level of contact. She obviously called somebody who she knew on some level, but for her to give that as advice would require her to admit that she has connections. This would be like Phineas making a video being like, how I landed a guest spot on a Billie Eilish record. And you're like, well, you're her brother. Yes. That's how you did it. Like, that's actually reasonable advice. Yes. Use your connections. I had already been in the industry. I had been planning celebrity weddings for 12 years at this point. So I was lucky to know a lot of high status people who I could write emails to. Right. Just say that, Rachel. It's fine. But then she does this whole rigmarole about how, like, make sure you write a concise email. And like, I wrote a really business-like email. It's like, Rachel, they didn't reply because your email was good. Right. They replied because it's like, who's Rachel Hollis? Ah, yeah, I know her. I think somewhere in her brain, she actually thinks that she got guests on the first season of her podcast because her emails were good. Well, and like a very bad email is is a good way to get a quick no, but it's not the answer to getting a yes. It's also the, the other like genre of information in this clip other than like just weird lies mm. is just useless advice. It's like, mm. yeah, when you reach out to people in a business email, you should probably write it in like a business-like concise way. Right, you shouldn't just... Write an email that's like a voice memo attached of you being like, podcast? Exactly. Don't like, don't send nudes. (laughs) Write a normal adult email. Great, Rachel. And like at other points in this podcast episode about how to start a podcast, she talks about how like you should have a consistent release schedule. If you have a podcast that's easy to record, it might be better for time management if you record like three episodes at once on the same day and then release them every week. This is all fine advice. Yeah. But it's like if you Googled how to start a podcast, those would be like the first three things that came up. Yeah. It would be like if she was like, come to me for my exclusive list of what's coming to Netflix this month. And I'm like, there are hundreds of those on the internet. We already know that. We can find from so many places, Rachel. This is something that I actually find really fascinating and weird. Like, I have watched hours of Rachel Hollis. I have read hundreds of pages of Rachel Hollis stuff. There's no, there's nothing actionable. Huh. She has this fascinating chapter in her book, I Didn't See That Coming, which is about, like, how to overcome challenges, where she's talking about, like, during the recession. Mm. All of a sudden, all of her, like, high-end weddings and stuff get canceled. She says, I looked at where we really were. I got rid of any expenses that were non-essential. I figured out every way I could think of to make extra revenue for my business without spending money. Mm-hmm. Okay, you you cut expenditures and you raised revenues. <laughs> if you want to make more money, what you should do is make some more money, Mike. I'm literally, I'm not taking this out of context. Like there is nothing specific. This also plays into sort of like a logic about employment and success and all of this sort of stuff, which is just like, you just got to pound the pavement. You just got to get out there and like do the work. And you're like, okay, so what's the work? And they're like, you just got to go do it. Yeah, specifically. And it's like, like, okay. Her weird approach to this also leads her to give bad advice. She has like just this ludicrous advice on like getting advertisers 
she talks about like local podcasts. She's like, you might want to start a local podcast first. Uh-huh. The the like local national distinction doesn't really make sense in podcasts because all the distribution is international. Yeah. Then she says, one of the things you should do is if there's like a restaurant that you like, what you should do is you should insert an ad in your show for like Joe's Pizzeria <laughs> and then send the pizzeria your show and be like, if you pay me, I'll keep doing this. What? <laughs> It's the worst advice. Like, you're supposed to just, like, give free ads to random businesses? Mike, at this point in the show, I'd like to just say thanks to our good friends at McAllen Scotch. McAllen! It's the only scotch I drink. Like, what are we fucking doing here? I have listened to this infernal episode about how to start a podcast twice. It's also incredible to me how it includes no research. So, like, she has a team of 22 people working at her company now. What? Yeah. It's like, it's like a it's like a media empire. She easily could have assigned somebody, like, hey, spend a day. Like, call around a couple, like, podcast agents. Ask them, like, what's going on in the podcast industry these days? True crime podcasts are up and, like, conversational podcasts are down. Or, like, movie mm. podcasts are in. Like, get some intelligence on the industry and give us, like, some insight. Also, just, like... Things like, how do you pick a format? What kind of growth yes. can you actually reasonably expect? Yes. This whole clip was just like, I was listening to it and I was like, we have a podcast and we don't really tend to have guests, but then what? Exactly. She also does this thing. She's like, you need to make sure, like, be very deliberate with the format that you choose. You might want to do a solo podcast like this one where you just talk into the microphone. You might mm. want to have guests or like you might want to do something more in depth like cereal. <laughs> You're like, Rachel, those are completely different levels of, like, expertise required, technology required. Like, you can't just tell people, like, you might want to do something like cereal, which takes months of work. Right. Maybe you want to uh, have, like, an investigative journalism podcast from someone who's <laughs> been in the industry for 15 to 30 years. How would anybody do that? Here's what it reminds me of is uh, there is a great Maria Bamford bit where she talks about like going on a date with some dude and he's like, what do you do? And she's like, I'm a comedian. And he goes, yeah, you know what I would do if I was a comedian? And she goes, what? And he go, I just like come up with something like totally original that nobody's ever thought of before, like Seinfeld. <laughs> and then I just like put that out into the world. And then I just fucking coast. <laughs> and this is like, really a hop, skip and a jump away from that kind of like quote unquote advice. That's like, yeah, man, sure. You know what I would do if I were a YouTuber? I'd make a video and I, then I'd like have it go viral. And then I just fucking post. <laughs> I just fucking coast. I mean, I also, I, I do think that a huge percentage of quote unquote life advice is just people telling you what they did. Yeah. And not realizing that they're just describing a study with an N of one. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually fine to just describe your own experience. Yeah. But what's so weird about Rachel Hollis, she's not doing either one. She's not giving useful advice. And she's not just telling her own story because she's so fucking vague about her own story. Well, and she'll toss in little gems like, I'm Southern and you know we love a monogram. We love a monogram. Like, Wait a minute, are you even telling your story? It just It's buried under these layers of like her lack of self-awareness about what she's actually doing. Yeah, that's right. I Okay, I have no, we've never done this before, but we are... <laughs> We are exactly halfway through my notes <laughs> and, we've, and we've been recording for three hours. Should we make this a two-parter? Yeah. Should we just like cut here? This is like kind of in the middle of everything. But next week we are going to focus in 
on the content of Rachel's books. And we're going to talk about the downfall, which is actually like a weird like six-step process. Ooh. And then we're going, of course, to circle back to the infamous freeze frame TikTok. Look, we've all underestimated Mike's passion for both <laughs> Rachel Hollis and face washing. How is this the one that I have to split into two? <laughs> How is it not the one about like international development, which I did as a career? How is it the fucking influencer? <laughs> yeah, you're like, well, Dr. Oz, done and dusted. <laughs> but Rachel Hollis, now we gotta focus in. <laughs> 